<laughs> yo, what's up? This is the bizarre and fascinating. This is the bizarre and fascinating details podcast, and I am your host Sarah. I've got Darcy, the wannabe rapper, over the other end <laughs> over here. <laughs> I just tried it out, see how it fit. Didn't How's like it, it. going, Darcy? <laughs> uh, it's going pretty good. I'm in Birmingham. Came home for Thanksgiving, um, right before the CDC told us not to travel. But um, the CDC said, "Oh, yeah." Today they that, did that whole mandate. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to do a small thing. I think it's just going to be me and my dad doing Thanksgiving this year. So, well, I mean, sometimes we're that gonna can keep be good. It small. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's just me and Mike this year. Like, yeah. I got my little turkey, a little turkey, little baby turkey. See, I told my dad, I was like, I can make like a couple things, but I'm not very good at turkey. So, like, let's just get a turkey breast from like Honey Baked Ham and like, right? Call it a day. Let me, let me holler at some side dishes and then that'll be cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was originally going to do. Just get a chicken yeah. breast and call it a day. Um, yeah. Because I love chicken breast, but Mike likes the dark meat, so... Oh, no, thank you. He's like, just get, you know, we'll, and it wasn't that expensive. It was only right. like 10 or 15 bucks. So we got a small turkey, and then I got this stuff to make rolls and stuffing mm-hmm. and all that kind of good stuff. I usually do all that from scratch. Yeah. So we'll see what happens this year. Um, it's going to be interesting. So just have a little story to share. Okay. Remember, remember how I told you I um, saw mouse droppings and <gasps> yes, so I was like, "Oh crap, we need to get some mouse traps." And you got like that thing, like that that buzzing thing or whatever. Yeah, so we got the like electronic devices that you plug into the wall. Yeah. And um, so I walk into the kitchen last night, and there's a fat mouse <gasps> on the counter by the sink. Oh my god, I'm so sorry to hear your house burned down. <laughs> <laughs> Right? So I was like, I screamed, right? I'm like, that freaking mouse basically turned around and gave us the middle fingers. Like, you think it was like Gus Gus from Cinderella, the big fat one. You think your stupid mouse thinks you're really doing anything? Is essentially what this little bastard said to me. Oh my god. Like, you saw. just made it like radioactive and indestructible. It was huge. Like, I thought when when I saw the mouse droppings that, yeah, it's going to be one of those little tiny field mice. Uh They're cute. And, oh, look, they're so innocent. No, it wasn't a rat, but it was definitely a very large fat mouse. Oh my gosh. And. My mom was like, it's probably pregnant. And I'm like, <laughs> let's get a cat immediately. Yeah, for real. You like, you need to just like borrow your neighbor's cat for yeah, like a but hot second. Here's the thing though. They catch them and then they bring them to you. <laughs> I don't want to touch them. I don't want to yeah, be involved. Yeah, but if they don't catch them though, they'll, they'll scare them away. They'll, they'll be like, oh, I don't want to go in that house. There's a cat there. I don't want to be involved. They'll keep them away. Uh, yeah. I don't want cats bringing me mice. They did that when I was growing up. I grew up yeah, with cats. Yeah, my cats did that too when I was younger. <sighs> They would tuck them in the table legs. They would bring them. They would lay them on your pillow. No. Ugh, gross. <laughs> no, thanks. And it just sounds like, yeah, we've, we've got them here. And they came out to say hello last night. And so, of course, I run towards the... Excuse me. I run towards the mouse, and it disappears. And I'm like, where the hell <gasps> did it... Where the hell did it go? Um, My friend actually... Noelle sent me this text because she was catching up on the podcast about when we had that conversation about like pregnant people aren't supposed to um, clean out litter boxes. Yeah, yeah. So she says it's due to toxoplasmosis. So outdoor cats get it and can bring it inside and it's harmful to the baby. But that's outdoor cats. So if they're indoor cats, they're not going to have it, right? As long as they don't go interact with anything outdoor, yes. But she says most people have already been exposed to it at some point and you can't get it twice. Oh, and you can also get it from dirt, so you can get it by gardening. 
Wow. So that's from my friend Noelle. So don't who garden. Who is currently pregnant. So <laughs> Don't garden when you're preggers. Yeah. So Interesting. she says most people just pass it off to their partner, pass that chore off to their partner. So, wow. Yeah. Because I was gardening last weekend. But I, uh, use glo- I use gloves and stuff. Like, yeah. I'm, I don't, like, touch anything with my... Well, and if you had a cat growing up, I think she said that you probably have already been exposed to it. So. Probably, because we had outdoor cats. We didn't have litter boxes. We didn't either. But those suckers, they slept in our bed. They slept next to us. They yeah. cuddled with them. Like, one had kittens in my bed. Like, Ew. I'm sure that if they were, like, if you're able to be exposed to it, I was exposed yeah, to it. Because it probably, probably so. We but had yeah, cats. But that's the answer. So. We had birds. We had fish. We Ew, had dogs. I don't like birds. I do not like birds at all. We had everything. Birds freak me out. They're gross. Mm-mm. We had parakeets. And I, inter- I, interestingly I, enough, we had a cocker spaniel. And we left the house at one point, and the cocker spaniel knocked the cage onto the floor and killed the parakeets. Because <gasps> they're bird dogs. They are, but we at least have cocker spaniels growing up. Yeah. So that was interesting. <laughs> I aggressively do not like birds. Um, I kind of have an allergy to them, I've discovered. Really? In the last couple of years, especially parrots. There's something about their dander that just makes it so that huh. I have a very hard time breathing when I get around yeah. them. So, Interesting. Hmm. They live a long time. Evidently, they live decades. Yeah. yeah. So, interesting animals. Very yeah, smart. No thanks. Yeah, but we had parakeets, and I don't. We might have something else, but we definitely had parakeets for a while. And I remember yeah. once we came back and found them dead. I put them in a little pencil box and had a funeral for them, and yeah, read an obituary. I wrote an obituary <laughs> for them. Oh, <laughs> we had a little funeral, and I did my thing. I was really. Yeah. Kind of into that. I used to write notes to the other kids from the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, was, I was a very creative child. Yeah. <laughs> I had no I other was outlets. Not, man. Because I was a nerd. No, <laughs> I wasn't a nerd. I was a weird child, but I wasn't a nerd. Um, <laughs> clearly, I was a very weird child. <laughs> um, <laughs> do we want to jump into the episode for the day? Yeah, dude. So. Talk to me. Tell me. This is. Get a banana, slice it, put it on some bread, because this story is banana sandwich. It's okay. crazy. Okay. 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 I can't wait. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Sandra Bridewell and the curious reason people around her keep dying. Okay. So there's very few verifiable facts about Sandra's past, but we do know that she was born in Missouri in 1944. Southern lady. And yes, and she was adopted as an infant by Arthur and Camille Bowers. But when Sandra was three, her mother died in a car accident. So it's just her and her dad. All right. Then her father remarries to a woman named Doris. And when Sandra is six, they moved to the Dallas area of Oak Cliff. So I found this story. I was actually looking up a different story and a Dallas Magazine article came up and this is like one of their top 40 stories they've ever written. So that's where all this comes from. And it's wild. All right. So we know from a childhood friend that Sandra and her stepmother did not have a good relationship. And Sandra would actually tell people that Doris shut her in a closet and would deliberately like not send out her birthday invitations and tell her that nobody came to her party because she didn't have any friends. What an awful person. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know how much of that's true. Who does that to a kid? That's what Sandra says. So, um, 
when Sandra was in high school, she always dressed immaculately. She had very nice manners. She was very put together, but she wasn't really popular and she didn't date very much, which, you know, sounds like me, minus the impeccable wardrobe and the polite manners, you know. <laughs> which but sounds like, like me, except for pretty much everything. <laughs> except oh, for my the first bad. two things. <laughs> yeah. But it was around this time that Sandra's friends kind of started picking up on the fact that she had a tendency to lie about her past. And, Mm. like, she missed hanging out with one of her high school friends one night, and she said, oh, my gosh, I had to leave and go to Missouri in the middle of the night. And her friend's like, no, you were definitely just at home. Right? Like, called her on it. (laughs) She's like, ah, no. (laughs) Yeah. And then she pointed out, like, this beautiful, large house in the Oak Cliff area to another friend and said that that was where she grew up. But, like, years later, when they had to go back to her her house for a funeral, they went to, like, a completely different house. And it was much smaller. It was not nearly as nice. I mean, it wasn't a bad house, but it was just a completely different house. Yeah. You know? So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, why are you lying? This is, like... We can check this information kind of a thing. But She's it's a little, just one a little of bit things. of a pathological liar. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And as an adult, she would tell friends that she attended both Texas Christian University and Southern Methodist University, which are both in the Dallas area. TCU's in Fort Worth. SMU is in Dallas. But mm-hmm. neither school has any records of her attendance. And both of those schools are private and very expensive, by the way. Mm. And we know that she did attend a junior college for a year in Tyler, Texas, but... She had returned to Dallas by 1966. Okay. And around this time, her friends say that Sandra kind of turned into this Martha Stewart type. All right. So she knew how to make, like, all these homemade desserts. She subscribed to Southern Living Magazine. She played up, like, the Southern Belle submissive woman. Like, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach kind of a thing. Which, I mean... Is not wrong. (laughs) You know, but she's a very much a Betty Homemaker kind of a type. Right, right. And around this time, she also starts dating because she's getting a lot of attention from men now. And she starts dating a dental student named David Stiegel. Mm -hmm. And David is good looking and he comes from a wealthy family in the Fort Worth area. And he followed his dad and in going into t- to dentistry. But his, whereas his dad was just, you know, your, your average family dentist, David wanted to be more of like a high-end celebrity clientele kind of dentist. So he set up his office to tailor to like the high society type. So he was performing all these like full mouth reconstructions that cost upward of $10,000. Wow. $10,000 in like 1967. So it's, it's a lot of freaking money back it's then. It's a chunk of change, yeah. So he also David also went out to Hollywood and studied with his prominent dentist in LA. And he comes back with a lot of co- uh, connections and like ways to market himself to these high-end society types, right? Mm-hmm. So after just six, six weeks of dating... David, Stiegel, and Sandra Powers got married. Mm-hmm. And immediately, they both started enjoying their new upper-class lifestyle. So Sandra started entertaining at their home. She was hosting elaborate dinner parties and book clubs. And she really wanted to be in, like, the junior league. But she never was actually accepted. But, like, that's what she was trying to get herself into. That's that's the status she so- wanted. What exactly is the Junior League? Like, I honestly don't know. It's just like a club for rich girls? Like, I think it's a club for rich women, yeah. Hmm, that's fun. And they, they like, they're, I imagine it's people that, like, they don't sit on the city council, but they, like, run kind of the way the city council, like, they run things in the little town, you know, kind of a thing. That's how kind of I imagine it. Hmm. Okay. And, um... By the early 1970s, David is making some pretty good money. So in 1972, his income was about 27000 But by 1973, 
he pulled in 68,000. So they they had a significant increase in their status in just one year. And they moved into this new upscale neighborhood. They bought a $65,000 house and then they started a $45,000 remodel. Mm. Okay. And they also had a live-in maid from Mexico. Before, that was, like, the popular thing to do for society ladies. Right. And they got their groceries delivered from a high-end grocery store. Okay? Wow. Sign but, me up. <laughs> well, things were not really as they seemed, okay? Because by 1974, they had three children, and they were drowning in debt. Mm. The IRS was threatening to foreclose on their home, and David had to borrow $100,000 from his father. Wow. So... I looked this up as what $100,000 in 1974 would be today, and it's more than a half a million dollars. It's a lot of cash. That he just borrowed from his father. So clearly he came from money, and clearly his dad was able to help him out in this way. But David had to make some changes to his lifestyle. He stopped doing exclusive high-end dental work. He started doing more family dentistry, taking on any job he could get. And a family friend said that David and Sandra were fighting constantly, and Sandra one time showed up with a black eye and said that David hit her. Oh. Well, and they actually good. started Yeah, and they actually started sleeping separately at this time too. And in one of the articles I read it said Sandra was sleeping in a different wing of the house. Dang. So like, that's that's that. legit serious right there. So yeah. So So Sandra starts sleeping in in this in a separate area because she's allegedly scared of David's violent temper. Okay. Mm. And David started seeing a psychiatrist for depression. And one night, Sandra calls David's attorney, and she's hysterical. And the attorney rushes over to their house and finds David crouched in a closet with a pistol to his head. Um, why'd she call his attorney for that? I think it's one of those rich people things where they're like, don't call the police, you call an attorney first. Yeah, but when you call like a family member, like, um, that's, I don't know. That's wild. I don't okay. know. Okay. I mean, I would not, not necessarily think, hey, my husband's about to commit suicide. I'm going to call my attorney. I need to get my affairs in order. Yeah. <laughs> so after the scare, David seemed to improve. He insisted he would never actually kill himself. He would never leave his children, things like that. And his psychiatrist actually ended up deeming him no longer suicidal. Okay. Mm. But okay. a week after this incident, he told his attorney that he was going to file from divorce uh, from Sandra and was in really good spirits. Okay. okay. And he was going to make like all these positive changes in his life. And here's where the stories start to diverge because there's one article I read that was in Dallas Magazine, one article I read that was on Dallas Observer. And in one of the articles, it says that on February 22nd, 1975, David Stiegel committed suicide. Okay. Well, that's, mm. that's, that's an accepted fact by both. But one article says that Sandra called a friend around 7 a.m. and said she heard something ominous. And feared something happened to David, but she didn't go and look in the master bedroom. Okay. okay. The friend comes over and finds David in the bedroom. In the other article, Sandra is sleeping in the children's bedroom in the other wing of the house and woke up to find David lying in a pool of blood in the master bedroom. Both stories say that David had slashed his wrist and had a twenty-two caliber bullet wound to his left temple. Why would you do both of those things? Well... In one of the articles, the one that claims the doctor found him, uh, that the friend, the doctor, the doctor friend found him, he supposedly found that David's wrists were slit horizontal, horizontally, whereas David, being a dentist, would know that 
if you want to commit successful suicide, you slit your wrist vertically. Not that we're telling anybody how to do it, but that was one of the things that um, the, was the reason to believe this that something of, was suspicious. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. Sandra ends up selling their home for 147000 and she gets another 160000 in life insurance. Okay, so the hubby's dead. Yep. Presumably he committed suicide. Yep. She gets a nice little fat cash payout yep. and inherits everything. And but. allegedly before David's death, Sandra had just happened to call the life insurance company to make sure that the policy still pays out in, in cases of suicide. Yeah. And you can no. make the argument... You can't make the argument because just about a week or two prior, he did have this incident where he was in the closet with a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, so like you could, if you wanted to make that argument, you could do that. Okay. She ends up also selling off David's dental practice and only brings in less than $15,000 for all of that dental Dang. equipment. And she paid off all of their debts and Sandra still had enough money left over to take a little vacation. Of course. As you do when you just lose your beloved spouse. Who among us? So (laughs) now you have Sandra. She's a a young widowed mother of three children and she doesn't have a job. She does. She's never really worked kind of a thing. So what does she do? She starts looking for another man. She joins the junior league. She joined them, (laughs) if only. She joined the Y. No, she starts looking for another man. Oh, and Sandra is not at all shy about going after what she wants. Okay. Shortly after David's death, Sandra mentioned three men that she wanted to get to know in the Dallas area, and they all just happened to be millionaires. Two thumbs up to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she starts dating a man named Norman Brinker, who was the founder of the Steak and Ale restaurant chain. And he was going through a divorce at the time. And while Sandra was dating Norman, she allegedly became the target of some harassment. Mm. In the fall of 1976, Sandra's duplex was broken into, and someone had written a threatening note on a mirror and lipstick. As you do when you break into someone's house. Obviously. And she also told a friend about a woman throwing a knife at her. Who does that? I don't know. I've never (laughs) thrown knives. Um, But apparently this harassment was so bad that Norman actually ends up hiring her a bodyguard. Wow. And Sandra actually gets deposed in Norman's divorce hearing. Mm. But we don't know what she said because Norman won't talk about her and the divorce file is missing from the Dallas County records. How convenient. So whatever happened, we we don't know. Okay. So at this point, Sandra is now the talk of the town. There seem to be kind of two factions of these high society people there's those who believe that she had driven david into near poverty with her spending and then there's those who thought the quote unquote old money set in dallas was just being too judgmental okay okay got it and after a short relationship with with another man a dallas financier david tells the man that she's pregnant but when the man doesn't propose wait david tells the man she's pregnant no after a short relationship with the dallas financier sandra tells the man she's pregnant okay Got it. But when the man doesn't propose, like she was hoping, she asked him for money to get an abortion. That it, what, what year was this? Uh, 76-ish. That's such a, like, 50s to 80s thing. Oh, hey, it I'm is. pregnant. It's Let's very get married. dirty dancing. <laughs> Let's get married. I'm pregnant. <laughs> and so apparently she would use this ruse numerous times over the next, like, 15 years, even though she had had a hysterectomy shortly after David's death. Yeah, this sounds like her go-to move. 
it's very much her go-to move. And they don't notice that she's not having a period because that was all real private back then. Oh, no. Yeah, that's no. You don't talk about that. That's that's lady stuff. It's private. And so in 1977, she meets Bobby Bridewell, who is the son of a rich oil man from Tyler, Texas. Okay? Mm, and sounds, Bobby sounds was promising. known. Yeah, Bobby was known to have a good time. He was always the last one to leave the party kind of a thing. Bobby sounds so, awesome. When Sandra pops out of a closet at this dinner party and yells, surprise, Bobby is smitten. He's like, this is my kind of girl. She's a good time. Happy birthday, Mr. Uh President. (laughs) So Bobby is going through a divorce. His first wife had just recently announced that she was leaving him for their horse trainer. Mm. Okay. So, knowing that Bobby loves horse racing, Sandra buys all these books, and she starts studying up to impress him. All of a sudden, she knows everything about horses. So, he's like, this girl, she knows what I like. She's into my kind of a thing. We have so much in common. Let's do this. Sandra and Bobby Bridewell married on June 26, 1978. She finally got one. And Bobby adopted her children. Wow. And Bobby was a real estate developer. And he soon has this idea to turn this, like, grand old historic mansion in the Dallas area into a luxury hotel. So he sells this idea to a hotel group, and he signs on as a consultant, so he's making six figures. So he's bringing in some good good dough, right? Needless to say, Sandra is loving this lifestyle, right? Her social circle, they're the new young socialites of Dallas, and she ate at the finest restaurants, threw the best parties, so on and so forth, okay? And Bobby's friends liked her, but they also said that she kind of had a way about her. One woman who was friends with her at the time recalled, quote, you'd find yourself doing little things for her, running errands, taking her children places, then you'd wonder why you were doing it when you knew she was down at the mansion having lunch. So she's just like kind of one of those people who just like gets you to do, manipulates you to do stuff for her, you know? But... These friends continued to help and support Sandra even in 1980 when Bobby is diagnosed with lymphoma. Okay. And Bobby goes through a round of chemotherapy with Dr. John Bagwell. And according to this article, he is one of the most distinguished oncologists in Dallas. But he also kept working through this whole thing. Um, But by 1981, after one round of chemo, his prognosis is not good. He's losing a lot of weight, and it's pretty clear that he's not going to be around much longer. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously one of those things that's out of Sandra's control. I mean, she didn't have anything to do with him getting cancer. But Sandra did some pretty odd things while Bobby was sick. So while Bobby's dying, Sandra starts renovating their Highland Park home. And if you don't know anything about the Dallas area, Highland Park is a super, super upper class area. Okay. okay. So she starts renovating their home. The winter before Bobby passes away, there's no working heat in the house. And Mm -hmm. one friend claims that she brought over electric blankets and space heaters because she wanted to make Bobby comfortable. I mean, he's sick. He has lost a lot of weight. He's obviously going to be prone to being cold. And there's no working heat in the house. And Sandra's friends are like, what the F? Like, why aren't you doing anything to take care of your husband? And... She says, we had these plans to renovate the house all along, and Bobby would want me to continue these plans. What? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, let's see. Who, who really knows? But in the spring of 1982, Sandra does ask a neighbor if Bobby could stay at her house for about a week because Sandra is going to have the central heating installed. 
So the the neighbor agrees, but Bobby and Bobby moves in over there, but doesn't come back home. He stays there for three weeks until his father got upset and put him up in one of Bobby's own motels. Hmm. And he remained in the motel until late April when he went into the hospital where he spent the last two weeks of his life. All of the while, the remodeling is continuing on the house. Bobby died. Yeah. Bobby died in May of 1982. And just a few weeks later, Sandra took her kids on a Hawaiian vacation. Uh Uh-huh. So by this time, Sandra's crowd is starting to kind of get tired of her. The way this article reads, it sounds like she's just kind of one of those types of friends that completely monopolizes your time and it's just exhausting. You know, I think we've all had like those types of people in our lives at some point or another. You know, it's... I'm not going to mention any names. No, but it's (laughs) it's not really a reciprocal relationship. They just take from you and they don't give anything in return. It's like a black hole. They just suck, 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 suck. I think we've all been there, but that's kind of what she sounds like. She just sounds exhausting. Yeah. So I mentioned Bobby's oncologist. His name is Dr. John Bagwell. He and his wife, Betsy, are very well known in Dallas circles. And before you know it, Sandra has wormed her way into their life. Shortly after Bobby's funeral, Sandra shows up at the Bagwell's vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she starts calling Betsy her new best friend. Ah. And Betsy's very sweet. Like, she is known to drop in on her patients' families. You know, they're obviously going through a difficult time. She, she's, she's very caring. So she's not catching on that Sandra's just kind of leeching onto her, you know? Yeah. She thinks she's just going through a really tough time. But eventually... Betsy does tell friends that she's starting to feel smothered by Sandra's nonstop calls for help and for child care. Like, there's always an emergency kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And she also said that Sandra's a little too interested in John. You think? Yeah. <laughs> One night, Sandra called John and said her car had stalled while she's out running errands. So John agrees to go pick her up. But when he gets there, a police officer is getting into her, into her car. And would you know it, the car starts right up. Mm-hmm. So John would later tell investigators that he thought Sandra was kind of lying about the car trouble to lure him away from his house to get him alone. And he is obviously pissed off and he goes home and tells Betsy to start distancing herself from Sandra. Okay. Okay. And just a few days later, Sandra calls Betsy. Guess what? Her car stalled. Hmm. Betsy's too nice to say no, so she goes to get Sandra, from pick her up from her car, and she takes her to Love Field Airport so they can rent a car, okay? Unfortunately, Sandra didn't bring her driver's license, uh-oh, so she couldn't get a car. Interesting. So they go back to where Sandra's car is, and hey, while we're here, why don't we just check the car and see if it turns on? When you know it, cranks right up. Okay, at this point, Sandra says that she and Betsy split up and Sandra went shopping. All right. Mm -hmm. A little bit before 830 that night, police find Betsy in the parking lot at Love Field, slumped in the driver's seat of her car with a bullet hole in her right temple and a 22 caliber revolver in her hand. Apparently, this gun was registered to a deceased man who kept the gun in his glove box and his wife said that the gun was stolen sometime in the 70s, but they never bothered to report it. 
Interesting. So it's a 22, which is also what David shot himself with. Just and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but Dave, the gun found in David's hand was also stolen from one of his patients. I'm just wondering if they did the gunshot residue testing back then. Stay tuned. Okay. So the medical examiner rules Betsy's de- Betsy Bagwell's death a suicide because tests showed that she had gunshot residue, blood, and tissue on her hand, all consistent with a suicide. Hmm. But Betsy's friends and family are convinced that she did not commit suicide. She had no history of suicide attempts or suicidal thoughts. Earlier that day, she told her kids not to pig out because she was defrosting dinner in the sink. I mean, she was making future plans kind of a thing. You know, it, it, it didn't make any sense. Right. And also, how did she end up with a stolen twenty-two? Like, why wouldn't she just go buy a gun? They were very well off. She didn't need to steal a gun. She could just go buy one for a gun store. It's Texas, for crying out loud. They yeah. give them out with your McDonald's. So, mm-hmm. no hate mail for that, please. <laughs> wait, wait. No, please it's don't fine. send us hate mail. <laughs> it's fine. Um, uh, so here we have another di- divergence in the articles I read because the Dallas Magazine article is the version of the story I just told. The Dallas Observer article says that when Betsy didn't return home for dinner, John called Sandra to ask her where Betsy was, and Sandra said she didn't know. And she also said, John, you sound accusatory. And this is before Betsy's body had even been found. Right. So, don't know. Sandra did, though, do some good after Bobby's death. She... She used the funds donated in Bobby's honor, about $50,000, to establish a week-long summer camp for children with cancer. And she moved on, too. In 1984, she met a new man, 29-year-old Alan Rearing. And Alan was a former college basketball player who had just moved to Dallas from his home state of Oklahoma. And he did what many former college athletes do. He tried to play professionally, and then he got a job working at a friend's company. Okay. And Alan started working at a, in the commercial loan department of a mortgage company, and he wasn't making very much money at the start, but he was, you know, planning to climb the corporate ladder. Okay. And since he was new to town, he was looking for a place to live, and he heard that some of the mansions in the Highland Park area rent out their mother-in-law spaces above the garages. So he's driving through the neighborhood and he spots a beautiful woman talking to her gardener on the front lawn. So he stops his car and he asks if she knows of any places that he could rent. Who does that? And before long, I don't, apparently in 1984, that's, that's how you found places to live. (laughs) It was before apartments.com, right? Apparently. And before long. Remember the apartment guide? Do you remember that? I do remember the apartment guide. They still have those. Like, that was legit, like, what I always used. But That's what I did in college. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Um, but anyway, uh, before long, Alan and Sandra are an item. She really gets around. Like. She moves quickly. And Alan, he tells friends that destiny has brought the two of them together. He oh, feels puke. bad for her. Pew, pew, pew. Both of her previous husbands have died, but somehow. That would be, like, a huge red flag. Like, run. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Don't Somehow, walk, Alan is led to believe that Sandra's first husband died of a brain aneurysm. Mm. Well, I mean, how how would he know? Like, it's not like they had the whole internet thing where you could just do a Google search, right? 
No, she, she he couldn't do a Google search, but it is concerning that she told him her first husband died of a brain aneurysm. Right. And not suicide. Right. And Alan also really adored Sandra's kids. And she would send the daughters to his office and they would, like, bring him flowers and stuff. What? And one day, Sandra sent her daughter Catherine up to Alan's office with a flower, and she said, I'm pulling for you and Sandra. We need a daddy. Ew. Isn't that Ew. gross? Yeah. It's so gross. That's so, so manipulative to use your kids like that. Yeah. Yuck. So, Alan is obviously not used to the lifestyle that Sandra's grown accustomed to, but he's quickly reeled in. So oh Sandra is, you know, giving him lavish gifts. She got Alan and his coworkers fifth row seats to like a Bruce Springsteen concert. And she lets them use her fourth row season tickets to the Dallas Mavericks. Of course. Yeah. But Alan's friends didn't really take the relationship too seriously. They thought Alan was using her for like the money and status. And they thought she was using him as arm candy because she's 40. She told him she was 36, but she's 40. He's 29. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's kind of a mutually beneficial relationship in that they're both using each other kind right. of a thing. So, so no one takes it seriously. It. They're like, okay, this will be but over soon enough. That's how his friends took it. But in the fall of 1984, while leaving one of these Dallas Mavericks games, Alan confides to a friend that Sandra is pregnant and is pushing for a wedding. Mm, even though she's had a hysterectomy. Yeah. She's using that same old, same old. Yep. And Alan's just not ready to get married yet. And like you just and said, with good reason. <laughs> Sandra actually has had a hysterectomy. And according to one of her friends, Sandra made it known very early in her relationship with Alan that she had had a hysterectomy and that she couldn't have children. What? So then how would he believe she was pregnant? Somebody's lying. Either yeah. Sandra told her friend that she told Alan that she had a hysterectomy or she didn't. And then she told Alan she was pregnant. I mm. kind of have my suspicions about which one I think happened. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's lying. Yeah. So regardless, the two get married in December of 1984. And, and he's like, s- yay, I can't wait for our baby. Well, and within six months, things are already not going great. First of well, all. What'd she tell him? That she had a miscarriage? Like A few uh, weeks after the wedding, Sandra calls Alan from a convenience store payphone and says she just returned from the hospital where she just miscarried their twins. Mm, she says nice. they were both born with red hair. Mm, okay. Which, like, that's not even believable. But right. Sandra also ended up having to sell the duplex, or the house that she lived in with Bobby Bridewell. And mm-hmm. they moved into a duplex. So mm-hmm. they've had to seriously downgrade their lifestyle. Oh, that's a bummer. Yep. And one of Sandra's friends remembers her complaining about Alan's spending, saying that he'd become a financial drain on her. But Alan's friends reported that Sandra ran up $20,000 on his Amex. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she probably did. I also feel that way. Yeah. And Sandra told friends that Alan was no longer sexually interested in her and even called his mother to accuse him of having an affair. Ew. Ew. And Mm -hmm. Alan supposedly called a friend of his in in Oklahoma who is an attorney and said, I don't know who I'm married to. I got to get out of this. Help. Yeah. (laughs) Help me. Help me. 
And in the summer of 1985, a neighbor said that Sandra began talking about how she was afraid of Alan and was afraid that he was going to kill her and that she had hired a private detective to check him out. She also told friends that Alan was involved in gambling and possibly doing drugs. And these are charges that Alan's friends strongly dispute. Yeah, how convenient. So they separate in 1985, toward the end of 1985, and Alan moves in with a coworker. A girl? Um, no, it is the coworker friend who got him the job. He moves in with his coworker friend and his wife. Okay. And um, on December 5th, Alan and this friend go to a Dallas Mavericks game, and Alan supposedly said, you know, I'm going to try and run down some financial data on her. So they're separated, but he's still using her Dallas Mavericks tickets, I guess. I don't really know. That kind of struck me as odd, but whatever. Right. So here's the thing, though. If he did look up any kind of financial info on her, nobody knows what he found. Because the following Saturday, he goes missing. Mm. So he's supposed to meet Sandra at a storage facility to help move some boxes from her duplex. And he had dinner plans with the coworker friend, the one he lives with now, later that night. But he never makes it to dinner. So at about 6.15, Sandra calls the coworker to say Alan never met her. And she also says, this is just like him to miss an appointment. He's done this before. Yeah. Laying um, the groundwork. Okay? Right. She's pretty clever that way. Yep. So... When Alan doesn't show up to work on Monday, though, his coworkers know something is up. Alan did not miss work. Okay? Mm-hmm. The coworker friend that he moved in with ends up filing a police report on Monday night because he finds out that Sandra never filed a police report. And she's still his legal wife. And two days later, so this is a Wednesday night, Two Oklahoma City police officers found Alan's car parked next to an electrical substation. And inside the car, they found Alan's frozen body shot in the head and torso with a 38 caliber pistol. Yeah, shot, of course. And the police contact Sandra, but they can't tell her of Alan's death over the phone, I guess, for legal reasons. And all Sandra says is, is it bad news? And when they say, yes, it is. Did he get murdered? (laughs) No, this is what she says. She says, is it bad news? And they say, yes. And she says, call, call his friend Ron in Oklahoma. And then she hangs up. Okay. And the police are like, this is weird. But like, who are we to say how a grieving wife is supposed to act? Kind of a thing. Back then. Yeah. Very sensitive. Didn't want to mess with the lady bits. Yes. And so when the friend Ron calls Sandra to tell her Alan has been murdered, she's now hysterical. Okay. Mm, Of course. Of course. And a couple that she knew from her second marriage when she was married to Bobby Bridewell came to console her. And they later reported that she threw her arms around the husband and said, no one is going to love me anymore. Oh, boy. You you already lost that battle when you killed the first couple. (laughs) (laughs) So. (sighs) When it comes time for Alan's funeral, Sandra puts him in the cheapest casket available. Of course. And then, after the funeral, she just happened to forget her her checkbook. So, uh uh-oh, she can't pay for the funeral. Uh, who lets you pay for the funeral after the funeral? 
Maybe the, I mean I guess that's how they did it, and this was eighty four or eighty five with a check. <laughs> yeah. So her, his friends and family end up having to cover the cost of the funeral. Oh my god, that's freaking awful. Yep. The day before the funeral, Sandra talks to two Oklahoma City detectives, and they want to talk to her more after the funeral, but she has back to Dallas. Hmm. So the detectives take a trip down Dallas way, and they pay a visit to Sandra. And Sandra tells them Hi, that Sandra. she's. <laughs> and Sandra tells them that she's got a lawyer, and she's not going to cooperate with their investigation. Of course. And not. she also is refusing to volunteer any hair or fingerprint samples. Meanwhile, okay. the detectives continue their investigation, trying to find out Sandra's whereabouts on the Saturday when Alan was supposed to meet her at this storage unit. Okay. Alan's coworker says that Sandra called him at 6.15 to say Alan didn't show up, but one of Sandra's friends says that she spoke with her between 6 and 6.30 at Sandra's home. So her timeline's mm. not matching up. Of course not. And a few days after the detectives left Dallas, Sandra's attorney asked her to take a polygraph, and she ended up taking two. And we don't know the official results, but the private investigator hired by the attorney resigned shortly after these polygraphs. Okay, but they, she passed both of them. What'd you say? She passed both polygraphs? It doesn't sound like it. Oh. It sounds like she, she bombed them. Because the private investigator was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not helping on this case. So... Alan's mother, Gloria, came to Dallas to pass out flyers because she's getting impatient that there's been no arrests or information for her son's murder. Right. I would, too. Yeah. So she also takes Sandra to court to ask that Sandra be removed as administrator of Alan's estate because she's suspected of having complicity in Alan's murder. Exactly. And in Texas, and I don't know if this is current, but at this time... The law was that you could only be removed as somebody's administrator if you are convicted of oh. being involved in somebody's death. Okay, that makes sense because you could always just accuse somebody right. just to get them off of the. Okay, got right. It. And and I and like I said, this was in 1984. I don't know if the, or 85. I don't know if this is you know current, but um, the two Oklahoma City detectives though were prepared to testify at this trial that they were focusing on Sandra as a suspect. So they were prepared to at least go that far and say that she is a suspect in this case. But it never made it that far because after some legal back and forth, Sandra finally resigned as administrator of the estate, saying that she has been subject to a series of accusations which are both false and unfounded in fact. So, Wow. Half of the $220,000 life insurance payout was put into Allen's estate. Minus the $32,000 that went to pay off his debts. And the other half was put into escrow pending the outcome of Alan's death investigation. Mm-hmm. And the FBI actually ends up taking over this investigation. And we know that there is some forensic evidence collected from Alan's car. So we know that they had hair and fingerprints, uh, hair and fingernails were collected. And the trajectory of the bullet hole suggests that Alan was shot by someone in the passenger seat. Mm -hmm. And 
They also found fingerprints on a hamburger wrapper that was found in the truck. And the autopsy reported that that hamburger meat was lodged in Alan's throat when he died. So you can make the case that that hamburger wrapper was from the time that he was shot. Interesting. Follow, follow me? Yeah. So the only thing is, though, because his body was frozen, the medical examiner can't pinpoint the time of death. Hmm. Then sometime in around 1987, Sandra picks up and moves to San Francisco. And she sues Gloria for the remaining half of Alan's estate, saying that as his widow, this money should go to me. And once the lawsuit is moved to California, Gloria ends up having to settle because she can't afford the legal fees anymore. So it basically just drained her of her her money. She couldn't afford to keep the lawsuit going. So she ended up having to settle and Sandra got all of the money. Uh... So we start to lose track a little bit of Sandra once she moves to San Francisco. But a second Dallas Magazine article caught up with a few of the many, many, many men that she scammed out of money. All right. So it was more than just the hubbies that ended up dead. Oh, yeah. Other men she scammed. Oh, yeah. So going by the last name Bridewell again, she starts dating a man named Dennis Kuba. Dennis, like so many of the other men Sanders met before is immediately smitten. And when all is said and done, he has given her more than $24,000, which she refused to repay. Oh. Before that, there was Tom Finney, who did not date Sandra, but he felt bad for her. He sued her for $61,500, saying that that's what he loaned her and she was refusing to pay- repay. Wow. Another man who asked to remain anonymous said that he was in the hole to her for $200,000. Wow. Who are these people that are just like, oh, hey, here, have some cash. So this is what they Uh, all said. Can you introduce me? Because (laughs) I would like some cash. This is what they all said. They said that they, they saw her car. They saw the way she dressed. They saw her, her decorations at her house. And they're like, certainly this woman has money. So when she comes to them and says, oh, my gosh, my son's college tuition is due. I need help. I'm behind on my rent. Oh, my gosh, they want to repossess my car. I'm having some money tied up in Dallas. And as soon as I get it, it's I'll give it right back to you. They look wow. at her belongings and say, well, clearly she has the money. So I'm just going to loan it to her. Yeesh. Yeah, it's not great. Right. So one of the men that... Oh, she, she's actually, in 18, 1987, she becomes the target of an FBI investigation into allegations of her illicit banking practices. <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding, right? And so one of the men says that he borrowed the money she needed. He took out a loan to borrow this money and put it into an account at, at this bank. The account was under the name the Branson School Parents Association, which was the private school her daughters went to. And she was a volunteer with the Parents Association and claimed that she had a th- uh, a signature rights with its account. Interesting. So this is probably where the illicit banking practices allegations come from. Probably. So from there, Sandra's trail goes pretty cold until the early 2000s when she pops up in 2004 as Camille Bridwell in Atlanta 
attending a black megachurch whose pastor preaches the prosperity gospel. So, you know, the prosperity gospel is like, as long as you pray, God will give you what you need. Look at me. I have a Rolex. I have a private jet. God gave me this stuff because I'm a good Christian. That's the prosperity gospel. Wow. Yeah. That's so, uh, Joel Oswald. What was oh, that's all. Yeah, it's, it's all of them. Yeah, so yeah. not all pastors, but all the ones that are on TV. But um, so she says that she is a missionary. She's just gotten back from India, China, and Pakistan, which are three countries that have famously great relationships with each other. Right. And she cons a woman named Jay. I think it's Jay. J-A-I-E. So if it's Jai, I might be pronouncing it incorrectly. But she, so she's now moving on to women then. Well, she, yeah, because now she's a missionary. She can't pretend she's pregnant anymore. She's like in her 60s. Okay. So she cons a woman named Jay Benson into letting Camille stay with her while she gets back on her feet, quote unquote. Mm. She also convinces Jay to sign paperwork agreeing to start a tech firm together because Jay works in the tech industry. She knows about computers and Sandra can walk the walk and or Camille, excuse me, can walk the walk and talk the talk of being a successful business person. So she's like, I have a success. Like I've had success starting businesses. You have the product. We can work together. We're going to make a lot of money because God wants us to or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after months of letting Camille, Oh wait, Camille also suggested that they take out life insurance policies on each other, given that they're business partners and all, because that's a normal thing. Right, right. Hey, Dars. Hey. Can, can we take out some life insurance policies just in case? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to be like, can we stop for a second? And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, no. no, we cannot take out life insurance policies on each other. Okay, sorry. Um, My bad. <laughs> <laughs> We're not making any money off this thing anyway. So, <laughs> well, we, we could. We could. After after months of letting Camille stay in her spare bedroom, yes. Jay finally rent, has rent, enough. Rent free. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rent free. She's literally okay. staying on an air mattress and she has one duffel bag. She's living like a bag lady now. Ooh. So Jay finally goes into the bedroom and she goes through her duffel bag. She oh finds a tablet on which Camille. Okay. Yeah. Stop. The, the Stop the show for a second here. If you had some random person living on an air mattress in your bedroom with a duffel bag for that long, would you wait or would you have stuck in there when she wasn't there and looked? Or before, No, I would have immediately before. stuck in there. Yeah, me too. But <laughs> okay, these just, are, just I, so, I mean, she says she's a missionary. She's just recently got back from foreign countries. She doesn't have anything to her name. She needs to get back on her feet. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the money tied up, you know, blah, blah, right. blah. So like, she, you know, Jay wants to be a good Christian woman and not snoop on her. She wants to, you know, be charitable, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. She finally has enough, and she goes into to the bedroom, and she finds a tablet that uh, Camille had written, quote, I attract millionaires and billionaires, and they have all the resources I need. And when I meet them, I will persuade them to give me what I want. That's just written on a, a notebook, just hanging it's, out. It's like, you know how you like, like write her, yourself her app, like daily affirmations? It's like a, her mantra now. Yes. Oh, yes. that's creepy. She also finds her passport, which mm -hmm. does confirm that she has recently been to India, Pakistan, and China. But she finds that her true identity is not Camille Celeste Bridwell, but Sandra Camille Bridewell. So this is 2004. So Jay hops on the little interwebs, and she starts Googling her. And she finds out, because Camille slash Sandra had mentioned that her late husband, Robert, 
had uh, was in you know was in Dallas, and so she starts googling Robert Bridewell, and she finds the information about this camp that she set up, this children's camp for for children that with cancer. And she calls up the camp, and she's like, "Hey, can you get me more information on this chick?" And the woman who answers the phone at the camp asks, uh, "What does this woman look like?" And when Jay gives the description the woman says you might want to sit down because i have some things to tell you Mm. and that is almost the last we hear from sandra bridewell but it's not over of course not (laughs) she has a murderpedia page and her class yeah and her classification is murderer question mark She's never been convicted of murder, but in 2008, she did plead guilty to one count of identity theft. She stole the identity of an elderly woman who believed she was a missionary. And she pleaded guilty in return for a two-year prison sentence. So she spent two years in prison. And that's the last... She probably spent six months in prison and Uh then got paroled, but... And that's the last... I could find on Sandra Bridewell. And there's so, she just so disappeared. much more to this story, especially the Atlanta missionary thing. But we're going to put it all in the show notes and you guys can read it for yourself because I'm already on page seven of my notes and I couldn't do anymore. I was just like, I can't with this woman. I can't. It's bonkers. She definitely is sketch city. And her daughter, one of her daughters, um, her children are mostly anonymous, but one of her daughters, I believe, does live somewhere in Alabama. Mm. And when contacted by the Dallas Observer, I do want to get the, read this quote. Hold on. Okay. Um, Dallas Observer. Okay. Catherine declined to talk to the Dallas Observer, but the detective recounted her words. Quote, my mother is a schizo, bipolar freak who has shit on everyone in her life. It's a public embarrassment being her daughter. I want nothing more to do with her. That is from her own daughter. So, it doesn't sound like she has much contact with her children at this point. You think? I can't say I really blame them. That sounds like a very toxic... I mean, the way this woman spends money, like, she spends it compulsively. I just have a like hard time the, believing she's going to have three husbands that would all end up dead. Like It's not like she outlived them and they died of natural causes. I mean, right. come the right. hell on. The second one, you know, I mean, he had lymphoma. Like, that. what, what are you going to do? Like, that That just happens. But I'm thinking the first that she, she murdered her first and third husbands. But as of yet, they have not charged her with any murders. And I don't know where she is now. She's probably hanging out waiting to get her revenge on you for talking about her on this podcast. You know what? That sucks. <laughs> She's going to get you, Darcy. <laughs> that super sucks. Um, and your little dog, too. And my little dog, too. <laughs> oh, yes. My fierce dog is a great protector. Um, she sits on the couch and shakes. Um, yeah, so that's the story of Sandra Bridewell, the Black Widow. Wow. She's yeah. super sketch. Mm-hmm. Loving it. <laughs> Only in the seventies and eighties could somebody really. Get that away story with. is so like it's a con- like it's it's the confluence of Dallas in the eighties. Like it's so perfectly like I'm just picturing like big hair and shoulder pads. I just wonder what she's doing now. 
I don't know. <laughs> I mean, don't she's you? she's destitute. Like it does. I mean, that's pretty clear that she is destitute, and she was living on people's couches in Atlanta. But that's almost twenty years ago. I mean, maybe she's in a nursing home with dementia somewhere, and none of this maybe. is. We're never gonna get the truth because she doesn't. Yeah. Remember, she doesn't remember it anymore. Isn't that wild? Crazy case. Crazy. Yep. So she's probably a murderer. Probably. I believe she is. Yeah. That many people can't die around you without something shady going on. It's a little weird. People have a habit of dying around her and her best friend, too. Well, dying and the money and, like, Uh uh, just a very unscrupulous, dishonest Two people around her were committed suicide with stolen twenty-two caliber guns. I'm not sure I'd buy it. No, no. Not so much. Not sure. But, I mean, unless you have anything else to add, do you want to wrap this one up? I don't. That's it. All right. Let's um, please rate, review, and subscribe, folks. We love it when you guys do that. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. It helps us pop up higher on searches. It helps give people a little bit more information about us and allows them to find us for, you know, our witty banter and <laughs> <laughs> intelligent dialogue, I, I think. No? Mostly. <laughs> please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real have a wonderful turkey day and live your very best life bye bye guys stay safe